Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 112, where we go back, back to, to the, the past. past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by listening to that taunting internal narrative that drives you insane. Because this week we're talking about Twisted Tales, published by Eclipse Comics in 1987. We got a cover by Dave Stevens, written by Bruce Jones. We got art by Rick Stacy, Scott Savidra, and Henry Mayo. And this is edited by Cat Ironwood. Uh, cover price, $3.95. Yeah, not too cheap, but it is sort of an expanded prestige format comic, we'll say. We'll explain why this thing exists as we go along. Uh, so now, the story of Eclipse Comics begins with Dean Mullaney and his brother Jan. They're sons of an early electronica musician named Dave Mullaney uh, of the cover band Hot Butter. Uh, they're best known hmm. for their 1972 cover of the Moog synth-pop instrumental song, Popcorn. What goes better with Hot Butter? <laughs> That's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the brothers founded Eclipse Interta- Enterprises in Staten Island, New York City in 1977. The following year, they published one of the fir- first original graphic novels that was Saber, Slow Fate of an Endangered Species, came out in August 1978, cover written by Don McGregor and drawn by Paul Goulassey. Uh This led to a 14-issue series published by Eclipse, covers dated August 1982 to 1985, uh, also August of that year. Uh, McGregor went to write, went on to write two additional graphic novels for Eclipse, each set in 1980s New York City, and starring interracial buddy Private Eyes, Ted Denning, and Bob Rainier, who are also in Saber. That would be uh, Detectives Incorporated, A Remembering of Threatening Green, uh, Remembrance of Threatening Green, 1980, with artist Marshall Rogers, and Detectives Incorporated, A Terror of Dying Dreams, 1985, with artist Gene Colan. Now, Eclipse published the anthology magazine Eclipse and the color comic anthology Eclipse Monthly, the first of an Eclipse Comics line that eventually would include such titles and creators as The Rocketeer by Dave Stevens, Zot by Scott McCloud, the graphic novel Stuart the Rat by writer Steve Gerber and artist uh, Colin and uh, Tom Palmer, and the U.S. reprints of Miracle Man by Alan Moore. Uh, for more on the landscape of this time, check out our Weird Comics History series on the direct market and Underground Comics, both of Available in our archives. And of course, for more on Eclipse's handling of Miracle Man, check out our three part series on Marvel Man Miracle Man, also in our archives. Yes. In the early 1980s, uh, Dean Mullaney met his wife, uh, met writer-editor Cat Ironwood, who was working for Will Eisner. Ironwood recalled that Eisner and his wife, Anne, hosted a party for me with all these comic book men I was flirting with. All these men came up. They all wanted to meet Will. One of them was Dean Mullaney, the co-owner of Eclipse Comics, a small independent publishing house. He was the most flirtatious. At some point afterward, once Ironwood finished her work organizing Eisner's archives, she and Mullaney became engaged and moved out to California. They'd be married in 1987. But before that, she schlepped around with Eclipse. Yeah, during the early 1980s, Eclipse moved several times from 81 Delaware Street on Staten Island, New York, to 295 Austin Street, Columbia, Missouri, and then to the small towns of Guerneville and later Forestville in Sonoma County, California. 
Uh, beginning in Missouri, Eclipse expanded operations under editor, editor Cat Ironwood, who capitalized on a growing appreciation of the comics art form. Eclipse was an early champion of creators' rights, which always looks good to those creative types, as you know. Uh, indeed, it was under her that they published most of the aforementioned works, uh, and also brought out graphic novels featuring opera adaptations such as The Magic Flute by P. Craig Russell, and children's literature such as an adaptation of The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. She also edited sets of offbeat trading cards that covered subjects such as the Iran-Contra scandal, the savings and loans crisis, the AIDS epidemic, and the Kennedy assassination, as well as true crime accounts of serial killers, mass murderers, the mafia, and organized crime. Now, Twisted Tales was published on a bi-monthly schedule by Pacific Comics from November 1982 to May 1984 for eight issues. With three exceptions, that would be William F. Nolan's The Party in issue number eight, Dennis Etchinson's Wet Season in issue number nine, and David Caron's If She Dies in issue number ten, all of the stories in the entire run of Twisted Tales were written by Bruce Jones. He uh, scripted for Warren Comics originally, and we'll learn more about him soon. When Pacific Comics collapsed in 1984, its creator-owned properties moved over to Eclipse. And again, more on this, check out those direct market episodes in the Marvel Man Miracle Man series. In 1985, Ironwood and cartoonist Trina Robbins would co-write the Eclipse book Women and the Comics uh, on the history of female comic strips and comic book creators. This was the first book of its kind, and it uh, gained a lot of mainstream attention. By this time, Eclipse Comics was selling a half million comics a month and was the third largest comic book publisher. And then, a flood wiped out much of their inventory. This was 1986. There was also a deal to translate manga, which turned out to be a little bit more expensive than they'd projected. Cat uh, Ironwood, who was then part owner of Eclipse Comics, would uh, divorce Gar- uh, Dean Mullaney. Uh, there was a bum deal with publisher HarperCollins, and then other costs uh, that were just sending the company into a tailspin. Uh, new issues were still going out the door, but any revenue from back issue sales ground to a halt immediately. A lot of that, or all of that stock was gone. Yeah. Uh, Now, it was time for a Hail Mary play uh, in order to dump the work that had been paid for and to try to get a little bit of a return on their investments. And so we have this odd, (laughs) unnumbered collection of never-before-printed stories under the series title... Twisted Tales. (laughs) (laughs) Now let's take a look at the cover here. We got a picture by Dave Stevens of what looks like a punk rocker getting handsy with Joan Jett. Uh, uh, To be fair, the punk rocker might be a zombie. Uh, The uh, tattoo on his arm designates him as a member of the, quote, Dead Boys. He's either a zombie Uh, or he's really just very Really emaciated and ugly. (laughs) Uh, Now Dave Stevens is the same fellow who created the Rocketeer. Uh, We'll put a pin in his bio for this episode since we'll probably read an issue of that series eventually down the line. I have a strong feeling about it. Uh, Inside cover are credits, which is white type on black background, if you're curious about it. So there's, that's nice and easy. Uh, (laughs) The first story is Turbides for Mars. This one is written by Bruce Jones, just like all the stories in this book. Uh, He was born 1946 in Kansas City, Missouri. He broke into comics in the early 1970s and moved from New York City to New York City from Kansas City looking for work as a comics artist for just that reason. He made his professional debut with major publications, Black and White Horror Comics Magazine, Web of Horror Number 3, April 1970 cover date. He wrote and drew the six-page story, Point of View. In 1970, Bruce Jones published his first novel, The Contestants, with Beeline Publishing. He then freelanced for Marvel Comics, writing stories for Kazar and Conan the Barbarian. 
as well as writing and drawing science fiction and other stories for the black and white magazine Marvel Feature. In a 2002 interview with CBR.com, he said, I began writing and drawing comics in the 70s with some short pieces for DC and Marvel under Archie Goodwin and Roy Thomas. It was rough in the beginning because my background was science fiction and mystery, and a very traditional style superhero ruled then. The climate was what you might term confining. I moved back to the Midwest to look for advertising work and ended up doing more comics instead. Marvel's black and white magazines, especially the science fiction books, because I loved to draw alien planets and I'd read a lot of sci-fi as a kid. Bruce Jones also wrote for Warren Publishing's black and white horror comics, Creepy and Eerie, uh, increasingly as the 70s wore on. He would explain, Eventually I was offered Red Sonia to write by Roy Thomas, my first regular comic job. I began writing steadily for the Warren books, Creepy and Eerie, etc., when Luis Jones took up the helm there. I still believe black and white comics have tremendous potential, and the oversized magazine format is a great showcase for the art. There's also more room for lots of text, which I was into at the time. I was lucky to have Rich Corbin, Russ Heath, and Bernie Wrightson working at the same time. When Louise moved to Marvel, she brought me along, and I began regular work as the writer on Kazar and Conan. That was fundamentally the end of my art career. I wasn't fast enough to do both, and I enjoyed the thought process of writing, which allows you to get out of the house and walk around while working. That's the key part, I think, the get out of the house and walk around part might be what is so... Uh, lucrative to the writer. <laughs> a keeper, yes. <laughs> now, under the pseudonym Philip Rowland, Jones would also write for Warren's rival, Skywall Productions, their line of comics. Uh, in 1979, Jones met April Campbell, and they formed a writing partnership. From 1982 to 1984, Jones and Campbell, who formed the company Bruce Jones Associates, packaged, edited, and chiefly wrote the Pacific Comics titles Twisted Tales and Alien Worlds, which was sort of the sci-fi counterpart to the horror comic Twisted Tales. Uh, they also did Somerset Holmes, Silver Heels, and Pathways to Fantasy, all for Pacific. During this time, Jones published a short story collection, The Twisted Tales of Bruce Jones, with a, co with a cover and occasional illustrations by Richard Corbin. He said, at that time, the independent comics boom was in its infancy, and I got a call from Steve Shanes at Pacific Comics offering me just about carte blanche on my own line of books and the opportunity to move to sunny California. It was too much to resist. I did Twisted Tales, Alien Worlds, Somerset Holmes, etc. for Pacific. Then Eclipse picked up the ball when Pacific Comics went bankrupt, <laughs> uh, which is right around when this Twisted Tales collection came out. Certainly, and we'll get into that right after we jump across the table and meet Rick Stacy. He was born in Leewood, Kansas. His first comic work was a story in the Comics Reader number 202. That was a June 1982 cover. Uh, after appearing in consecutive issues of DC Comics' New Talent Showcase, those were issues 10 and 11, October-November 1984 cover dates, Rick would do a job about once every other year for the publisher. Until around 1987, when he drew Who's Who Update number 7, September of that year, uh, Doom Patrol number two, November of that year, and was featured in this collection of Twisted Tales. Uh, Rick would continue to work for DC Comics through the 1990s, along with Marvel and Disney Comics, among other publishers. Today, he's available for illustrating, writing, and voice acting at rickstacy.com. He also teaches sequential art in the uh, Kansas City area. This story was also inked by Jim Mooney, lettered by Mike Worley, and colored by Marcus David. Also colored throughout the book is spelt with a U. 
Yeah. I <laughs> uh, just wanted to point that out. That's not correct, folks, unless you are in the UK. Uh, now, Termites from Mars opens with a big splash page of some kids watching a falling star from atop a hill. This actually does not figure into the story in it at all. Uh, just going to say up front, this is one of those baby boomer nostalgia, nostalgia yanks that were really common in the wake of the movie Stand By Me, directed by Rob Reiner from 1986. Think of the television show The Wonder Years, the movie The Sandlot. You know, there were just tons of these rose, rosy reminiscences about 1950s America, narrated by Mr. Kindly Voice will be uh, featured here. <laughs> and, and, then, and then we went to read the comic. Exactly, <laughs> that could very thing. And uh, the opening splash page of this comic is a stretch of road through a small town named Crystal Falls in the state of Illinois. We know that because the sign reads Crystal Falls, the heart of Illinois in the foreground. And then we get the main narrator. Now I'm going to tell you all about the termites from Mars, and I'm going to tell you about Denny Colt and Dougie Fremont and Porky Webster and the Rialto Theater and the Hanley House and the Union Cemetery and the Dark Man and Margie Brewster's breasts and me. And it's going to take some time, so pull up a chair and get comfortable. Could we just not? Really? Come on, Dad. Uh, <laughs> if you're under 40, and you probably are if you're reading this comic book, <clears throat> uh, I still got a year and a year and a month. <laughs> you got a little while. <laughs> Much of this is going to seem alien to you. This is a story about 1956 and what it was like to be a kid then. I don't think people think the way they did in 1956 anymore. You mean they don't believe black and white people should drink from different water fountains? It's a, it's a whole new era these days, I'll tell you. Huh. And I'm damn sure kids today don't. But try real hard anyway, because it's kind of important. Shut your eyes and lean back, and try to imagine a time before color TV and VCRs and computers and even transistors. Try to imagine a time when patriotism and war were synonymous, when jingoism and was an uncoined word but an everyday practice. And these are supposed to be good things to reflect on, right? When blacks were colored and bubblegum was a penny and flying saucers were really up there. Everyone was sure of it, and Davy Crockett and Buffalo Bob sold cupcakes to millions. I feel like everything after blacks were colored uh, really didn't belong in the same sentence. They right? really seemed to be on a different <laughs> list to me. <laughs> if it sounds awful, well, it was. Well, at least we're in agreement about that. I wouldn't go back. I loved it, but I wouldn't go back. Except, except for that one night, that special night I'm going to tell you about. That Halloween night, October 31st, 1956. I was 12 years old, a preteen for the last time. Innocence was having its final shrug inside of me, a last tug of childhood before junior high hurtled me irretrievably down the paler corridor of adulthood. No, oh, don't worry. You got plenty more tugs coming <laughs> your adult years, right. too. <laughs> Everything is fresher and somehow more exciting viewed through the eyes of youth. Nothing is dull and much is indelible. Come join me now in Crystal Falls, Illinois, and see again. I remember being really bored when I was a kid. I, I don't know about you. I, I tell you, yeah. Most of the time I was bored. <laughs> uh, now, <laughs> to the story. Two kids burst out of a school, a blonde kid in an orange sweater and a brunette kid in glasses wearing a scout uniform. The feller in the foreground, the blonde one, is our narrator, Brian. As a child, of course. Yes. What can I say about that Friday night? It was just the best night in the world. That's all, especially during the school year. 
Homework? Forget it. Sunday evening was soon enough. For now, there's the whole weekend to look forward to, and Halloween weekend at that. School's out, man. It's out. When summer vacation start, this kid must like hyperventilate. Right? This is like the, the Friday in October. He's like uh, going crazy over going it. Going nuts. <laughs> uh, now, the, the two we've seen meet up with two more kids on bikes. We got a chubby one in a baseball cap and a more nondescript brown-haired kid. The ritual's the same. Beat it from the schoolyard before the bells through ringing. Hop on our trusty Schwins and Power Blasts in the dark nebulae, shrieking our hero's name. Tom Corbett! Space Cadet! Then, uh, you know, this is Joseph Green of Grosset and Dunlap would develop the character Tom Corbett, Space Cadet. He was inspired by Robert, a Robert Heinlein novel called Space Cadet in 1948, but uh, based on his own prior work, uh, a radio script for Tom Ranger and the Space Cadets, uh, or it's Tom Ranger and the Space Cadets, yeah. which was submitted like, in 19, January 1946. I don't know if it's two different scripts or what the deal is, if, but, but that, that's how it was uh, written out. It's true. Uh, this remained unperformed when Highline's novel was published. Uh, Green then reworked his radio script into a script for a daily newspaper adventure script, which also never produced. Oh. Uh, Tom Corbett first appeared on television in 1950. Uh, the stories initially followed clo- uh, closely followed the scripts written for the unpublished newspaper comic strip. Now, Tom Corbett is one of only six TV series to appear on all four networks of the time, along with The Arthur Murray Party, Down You Go, The Ernie Kovac Show, Pantomime Quiz, and The Original Amateur Hour. Uh, this show, Tom Corbett, first appeared on CBS from October to December 1950, then ABC from January 1951 to September 1952, then on NBC from July to the September 1951, then Dumont from August 1953 to May 1954, and then back to NBC again from December 1954 to June 1955, with the final broadcast on June 25th, 1955. And because I know... Not everyone knows, including myself. The Dumont Television Network was an early network that once rivaled other commercial networks, but they did not make it to the present day. Yeah, and then we we probably could go like on a forty-five minute tangent about the the, the life and times of the Dumont. We <laughs> could. I know network, it, but... it really is interesting <laughs> stuff, but it's a whole different thing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now the stories follow the adventures of Corbett of Ven- of how do you say Venusian? Venusian, I would say. Venusian from Astro. Venus, yeah. <laughs> yes, he's from Venus, and the smug, bigoted Roger Manning, uh, cadets at the Space Academy, as they train to become members of the Solar Guard. Apparently, uh, apparently, yeah. Astro existed for Roger Manning to just to make bigoted remarks at you know being from <laughs> Venus. That was his whole thing. That's his whole gimmick. Now the action takes place at the Academy in classrooms and bunk rooms aboard their training ship, the uh, rocket cruiser Polaris, and on alien worlds, both within the solar system and in orbit around nearby stars. In the final season, the character Roger Manning is replaced by T.J. Thistle, who uh, plays pretty much the same role. Uh, Tom Corbett's Space Cadet would spin out into a series of uh, ghost-written novels, a comic strip drawn by Ray Bailey that ran from 1951 to 53, and a short run of comic books by Dell Publishing. Now, back to the comic we're reading, the four boys wind up as at a soda shop. Uh, just picture one that you've seen in, like, nostalgia pieces like American Graffiti and Back to the Future. Yeah, it's same, the same as that. Same stuff. Narrator says, first stop, Mar- Marcy's Market. Fremont wants his three musketeers. Colt, a pack or two of liquor made. And Porker, a double cherry phosphate. And me? I'm still looking for Spaceman Gum Card, number 20, crash landing in a Mercurian bog. 
Now, I know this comic comes with a narrator, but does it come with a translator? <laughs> I, think I, I think I need a little bit. Yeah, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> the narrator notes that Doug, that's the uh, fella in the scout uniform, is uh, is his, his what's his face? Is Brian's best friend among this group that's of pals. That's right. And uh, Denny, that's the other brown-haired kid that he's called The Spirit, after Will Eisner's newspaper comic of the same name. Uh, that strip first appeared in June 20th, 1940, ended on October 5th, 1952. Actually, was in its own pull-out section, totally produced by uh, Eisner. Uh, every prior Halloween to this, says the book, Denny dressed up as the spirit in his dad's overcoat and fedora with a domino mask, hence the wonderful nickname. Yes, and, and for more on the spirit, you can check out the episode of Weird Comics History where we discuss Will Eisner. That's, so true. That's true. There'll be stuff in there for you. Uh, back to the story. Denny stops by the drugstore to buy a pair of legitimate-looking binoculars. Yeah, he says... I've been saving six weeks for these things. Yeah, the heavier kid named Porky, obviously. He says, <laughs> binoculars? What are you going to do with them? And Brian says, you could have bought 40 packs of Licamade for what that cost. 80 if you buy them from the guy over in the park. <laughs> Denny says, Licamade, gum cards, cherry phosphates. When are you guys going to grow up? Great school's almost over. Looks like someone didn't get the memo that this is his last year of innocence, huh? You know what I'm going to see through these things tonight, do you? Just Margie Jean Brewster's boobs, that's all. Bull. Really? How are you going to do that, Colt? It's simple. Every night, Margie undresses in front of her bedroom window. She always leaves the light on and the shade up. Pete Carberry in the eighth grade told me. So, guess who's going to be positioned right there in her old man's backyard under the mother's, her mother's azalea trellis? And I'm guessing it's going to be you and, like, half the neighborhood's pedophiles, probably? That's At least, yeah. At least. And now we have a fellow named Doug, and he goes, You're going to get a position making license plates is all. Back to Porky. Can I come, Denny? Can I? I never seen a woman's chest before. Except my mom once. Brian it's pretty says, gross, huh? <laughs> I don't want to. Didn't really want to know the uh, backstory there. No. Margie Brewster's only sixteen. Pork face. She ain't exactly a woman. Yeah, but she's got huge, huge ones. How about it, Denny? Yeah, it cost you twenty cents a look. That's highway robbery. A dime a boob? It's a steal. Hey, look! New posters at the Rialto. Now, for this fairly crude level of artwork in this story, we see what looks like a splendid theater in its time, yes. really opulent. Now, there's a giant marquee that reads Frankenstein along both sides. The Rialto. Now, that was a movie theater. None of this cracker box suburban mall crap. The Rialto was a symphony of chrome deco and technicolor neon. And not just a couple of wimpy strands around the marquee. We're talking enough neon here to re rewire downtown Las Vegas. I mean, this theater made a statement. And from what we can tell, this specific place didn't exist. Uh, and not just this Rialto Theater, but uh, Crystal Falls, Illinois. Uh, there is a there is a place with that name in Michigan, and there is a Crystal Lake in Illinois. Oh, I hear they have a nice summer camp there at that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to stay too many nights. No. Uh, now, there are lots of Rialto Theaters in, in Illinois. However, all were built during Vaudeville's heyday between the years of 1914 and 1919. These were very opulent theaters that could seat hundreds that were later repurposed for single-screen movie houses. 
really, this bit glorifies the heyday of movie going when you you know you can go see two movies, newsreels, a bunch of cartoons, and scream yourself hoarse at a movie screen for like the price of a you know cost of a quarter. Pretty much. I mean that that's what parents used to use instead of before babysitters. On Saturday afternoon. Yeah, exactly. Get, yep. <laughs> get, get rid of the kids all day. Uh, now these kids are very interested to see Boris Karloff and Frankenstein. That was directed by James Whale, well, 1931, because it hadn't yet come to TV. Denny says that the book was sure boring, and of course he's talking about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, published in 1818 by Like Lackington, Hughes, Harding, Maver, and Jones. <laughs> Took five guys to make that book. That's how that's a how big of, it was. A lot of publishing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they tossed around some names of other popular science fiction and horror films of the day when Brian notices that Frankenstein is playing as a double feature with termites from Mars. Which is a real Woody Woodpecker cartoon from 1952, which yeah. was directed by Don Pattison. Not a movie, unfortunately. No. Uh, narration kicks in, and it did look neat. It looked even neater than James Whitmore and them. And that was just about as neat as you could get. Right then and there, I knew I, where I was going to be tonight. Checking out Maggie Brewster's boobs? That's where I'm going to be. <laughs> uh, them is a 1954 film directed by Gordon Douglas about giant ants taking over the Los Angeles area. I recommend it. Uh, the boys agree to meet back there at 7 p.m. to see this sweet double feature. On the way home, Brian passes by a creepy dude in a long coat who's uh, hanging out in the shadow of a tree. I was about halfway home, pedaling serenely down Maple Drive, when I saw him for the first time that night. A shadow-cloaked figure standing beneath a big maple tree in a long coat and floppy hat. He was all alone, and maybe it was the trick of the fading light, but he seemed to be staring at me. The dark man. Mm, at home, Brian bursts through the front door of his house, and he runs upstairs as his mother yells at him for running. Uh, he passes his little brother wearing Mickey Mouse ears, asking to borrow his catch's mitt. As he runs past uh, his mother doing needlepoint, she tells him, of course, don't run. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a gag. It's a running. Yeah. It's, it's a, quote, running gag. <laughs> uh, in this room, Brian puts together a model plane while listening to his radio. If there's anything on earth to equal the simple pleasure of listening to X-1 before supper and finishing a Ravel plastic model of a Curtis P-40, I'd like to know what it is. Well, first, we have to know uh, what you're talking about. Right. Uh, <laughs> now, X-1 was a half-hour science fiction radio drama, which was broadcast from April 24, 1955, to January 9, 1958, on NBC. Initially, a revival of NBC's Dimension X from 50 to 51, the first 15 episodes of X-1 were new versions of Dimension X episodes. But the remainder were adaptations of stories by popular authors of the day, such as Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Philip K. Dick, Robert A. Heinlein, Frederick, Frederick Pohl, and Theodore Sturgeon. A Ravel plastic model is, well, pretty much what it sounds like, a plastic <laughs> model kit made by a company named Ravel. Uh, Louis H. Glazer, a California entrepreneur, founded a plastic molding firm called Precision Specialties in Hollywood during 1943. Along with hired work, they had a line of toys beginning with model trains produced under the name Ravel. Around 1950, Glazer acquired molds for toy model kits of Ford's Model T car, and the modeling line was born. The company had its ups and downs, and maybe we'll get to more of it someday, since they did used to have ads in comic books. But suffice to say for that for now in the 1950s, they led the plastic model kit market. And the uh, Curtis P-40 Warhawk is an American single-engine, single-seat, all-metal fighter and ground-attack aircraft that first flew in 1938. 
And uh, that about sums it up. That's more, not much more to say about it. It's a, <laughs> it's a plane. Uh, so back, later at the dinner table, Brian's parents are arguing over the forthcoming presidential election. Uh, his dad thinks Adelaide Stevenson will win, while his mom thinks Dwight Eisenhower will win. Uh, this was a hotly contested race of the day Eisenhower won, as we know now. Uh, the way these two argue over the matter is really annoying. It certainly is. Uh, the father goes, Stevenson will win. Mom says, Eisenhower. Stevenson, people are sick of the Republican Party. Eisenhower, he's got that smile Helen Keller loves. That's not, that's not a... That's not that, a nice that, thing that, to say, no. All right. <laughs> Stevenson's a genius. Eisenhower is a war hero. Eisenhower's wishy-washy. Stevenson. Ike. Adlai. Ike. Now I understand why some people would join the Green Party, right? Or abstain from voting and moving just, to a shack. Yeah, just, <laughs> just move to a shack. Get off the grid. Uh, now, Brian's parents argue like this. The entire night. All night. Maybe. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it doesn't end. And it's just the same words over and over. Yeah. Uh, now, he prepares to go out for the evening. Uh, soon, as he's hurtling down the stairs, his mom chides him for running as he exits. He hops on his trusty Schwinn and takes off a white box held under one arm. It was only 6.30, but I had good reason for leaving early. Doug Fremont's family would be through with dinner at their house, and Doug, as usual, would be waiting in the basement. That sounds ominous. Uh, now, as he runs through Doug's door, Doug's mom tells him not to run in the house. Yeah, there it is. See, we both had Lionel trains. Didn't everyone? Mine was a Santa Fe super chief. Doug's was a Berkshire. My folks wouldn't allow a permanent layout in our basement, but Doug's basement? Doug's basement. Doug's basement was, well, heaven. If it had a black light and a bunch of beanbag chairs, you know, we all, we all knew a guy like that. Yeah, I might have been that guy, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> the original Lionel Corporation was formed in September of 1900 by Joshua Lionel Cohen and, and Harry C. Grant in New York City. Initially, they made what was were called electric novelties, like electric fans and mood lights. Lionel's first toy train, the Electric Express, was created in the company's first year. It was not intended for sale to customers, but rather as a storefront display. People liked it a lot, and so they made more of them. Lionel took a break from making trains during World War II, but got by when they made a Disney-branded hand car with Mickey and Minnie Mouse on it. This model train business would peak in the early 1950s, and by 1958, Lionel reported a loss in their model train division. They continued to make trains, but diversified into other products, such as phonographs, science sets, weather stations, and plastics engineering kits. They've been bought and sold and reorganized a few times since the 70s, but they're still kicking today as Lionel LLC still making model trains. That's right, and they cost a mint. A bunch. Uh, Doug has set up the track so he and Brian can race their respective train cars. Brian's is a streamlined, modern-looking thin, while Doug's is a more classic steam locomotive engine. But when they race, Doug's engine beats Brian's. Beat ya! Yeah! Ha! I did it! Sorry, pal, but the best engine won! And Brian looks at his engine dejectedly and says, I, I can't believe it. How could you let me down like this? And then he narrates, It was enough to ruin the year, let alone the expectations of termites from Mars. Fortunately, it was hard to remain depressed long when you had friends like Porky Webster. And so Doug and Brian show up at Porky's house. He opens the door and reveals that he's dressed like a werewolf. Doug goes, Jesus, Webster! Porky, what happened to you? I'm a werewolf. Hey, where's you guys' costumes? 
He looks more like he has like a badly affixed beard, quite frankly. Yeah, I would I, I would go a hobo with his look, right? Like I think school. so, yeah. Uh, otherwise, or Harvey Bullock. <laughs> that would work too, yeah. If he was eating a sandwich, <laughs> uh, or chomping on a cigar. Otherwise, uh, Porky he's just wearing like a pink collared shirt and blue jeans. He's a very like yeah. preppy uh, werewolf, very laid back werewolf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he does have some fake hair glued to the back of his hands too, though. So there's that. Uh, mm. Doug and Brian double over in laughter, and they set to removing Porky's fur as quickly as possible. <laughs> Doug goes, you're 12 years old, you jerk. You're supposed to be too grown up to play trick-or-treat. But we did it last year. Uh, by that logic, you should trick-or-treat until the day you die, right? If it's only based on whether you did it the last One, year. Yeah. If you it's ever true. do it, you do it forever. <laughs> uh, Brian says, come on, we better get that stuff off before Colt sees you. The boys get to it using scissors and some industrial cleaners. Uh, they get Porky down to having a uh, a very uh, very uh, hip looking five o'clock shadow. I thought so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, I think he's bleeding. Can't take it, fellas. Really, this is worse torture than watching the Kate Smith show. Well, I ain't gonna be seen with no two legged dog. Now, the Kate Smith show was a show that aired on CBS for six months in 1960, four years after the story takes place. But paranormal. Porky is doubtlessly referring to one of her earlier shows on NBC, a talk show that aired Wednesday nights from 1951 to 52, or even more probably Kate Smith's weekday show that ran from 1950 to 54. Uh, Catherine Elizabeth Smith, born May 1st, 1907 in Greenville, Virginia, quit nursing school to pursue a singing career. Smith's professional musical career began in 1930 when she was discovered by Columbia Records. She debuted uh, on radio in 1931, and that year she performed the controversial Top 20 song of 1931, That's Why Darkies Were Born. Uh, Nice. So she was a major star of radio in her day, but by Porky's time, her public career was more or less coming to its conclusion. Uh, On October 26, 1982, Smith received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, America's highest civilian honor by U.S. President Ronald Reagan. Back to the story. The boys put his dad's hat and trench coat on him, hoping folks don't notice that he still has a very hairy face. Uh, You know, because a little boy in a fedora and a trench coat, that'll nobody's going to notice that. It's very inconspicuous. Uh, Porky and Doug bicker with each other as they walk to get Denny. Now, we're not going to repeat some of the naughty things they're saying, but it's clear, and the narration states as much as we'll get to, that Doug has a penchant for epithets based around the male member, while Porky prefers a more homophobic slur. That's their their bag. That's their go-to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Then Brian narrates, Fremont and Webster were actually good friends, but they hailed from decidedly different schools of verbal abuse. Porky believed that gave euphemisms were the best source of personal debasement, while Doug favored certain portions of the male anatomy. And then Brian says, Cool it! There's Margie Brewster's house! Colt was in the bushes below Margie's window, just like he said he'd be. We made the mistake of letting Porky give the first greeting, werewolf fur and all. Hey, Colt! Yeah! Jumping Jesus, what the hell are you supposed to be? A walking armpit? He, he's a werewolf. Seen Margie's boobs yet, spirit? Nah, but I'm expecting to any minute. So just cough up your chains, boys, if you intend to ogle the melons. I get first look. Brian narrates a long section about how important boobs are to young men. Yes. Uh, if you need clarification on this, you can ask the young man about it. I'm. They will let you know. They'll tell you. <laughs> they will tell you. So uh, the boys hang out around a little while waiting for Maggie Brewster to show in her window, but then they get cold. 
Uh, a peek into the living room's picture window reveals that she's watching a movie with her parents and won't be retiring to bed anytime too soon. So the boys decide to beg and head to the movie. Except for Denny Colt, uh, that is, uh, you know, his binoculars did cost 40 packs of Lickamade. Yeah, he ain't going to give that up, so. No. Uh, narrator says, we left Colt among the azaleas. At that moment, at that point in my life, insects from other planets took decided precedence over the female form. Doug, Porky, and I went off to play the Porker's Pop a visit. Took us about 10 minutes uh, climbing through backyards and through Sutter's fields. And then, all at once, there we were, and the house on the hill. Porky goes, Hiya, Pop! Porky addresses a headstone in a crowded-looking cemetery. It looks like Porky's dad is deceased, though uh, details are hazy. I don't think we'll ever know. Yeah, Porky had never known his real dad. He died before Porky was born. And according to the Porker, his mother changed the subject every time Mr. Webster's name was brought up. He was a total enigma to us. But Porky was convinced he'd been a great guy. And since no one would tell him his father's history, Porky just made one up. Best pilot in the whole Navy, my dad was. Wiped out an entire Japanese armada, my old man did. My my mom told me. And Porky weeps. Mm-hmm. Before the boys leave, they pick up a bunch of rocks. Then chuck them at a creepy-looking house on the hill. That sounds like something a bunch of boys would do. Sure. And before we left, we always had to pick up a couple of rocks and pay our respects to the Hanley house on the hill, squatting there like a malignant toad. Deep, dark, and terribly silent. He had chased us once, three years ago, old man Hanley had, and retrieved a pearl-handled jackknife that had fallen from my pocket. No one had seen or heard from him since that night, and no light showed in the brooding, heavily draped windows. Many believed him dead, rotting away in some upstairs bedroom. Many believed that Hanley's dead spirit walked the empty halls and roamed the hidden passageways, rumored to be there. But one thing everyone agreed on, alive or ghost, Hanley had been rich. There was good reason to believe that most of those riches resided somewhere within that hulking tomb he called home. But none of us dared go near it. Why do you think he would keep most of his money in the house? Mm. You saw him moving in, in extra mattresses or something? I, I mean, mean where, why, where else is he going to keep it? What is the assumption? I don't know. What, why, why? We know it's got... Why? <laughs> why, would, why do you know that anyway? <laughs> now, the boys walk uh, away from the Hanley house and the cemetery, and Brian glances back. What he sees is the same dark man, that figure standing in the shadows. And he decides maybe he shouldn't mention it to the other fellas, or the police, or any authority at all, for some reason. <laughs> uh, when they get to the Rialto Theater, the girl in the ticket booth recognizes them and laughs at Porky for his fake beard. Ah, oh, come on. I think it makes him look distinguished. I think it looks good. Yeah, really. It does. It, does. it fits his face. Frames his face. Uh, now, the kids make it into the Rialto's balcony section, which is uh, apparently theirs. In those days, theaters still had balconies. This one belonged to us. It was generally understood among the lower classmen. Yes, Porky sees some of the lower classmen and goes, All right, you little kids, scram! And one of them says, Big shot sixth grader thinks he's a tough guy! The other one wearing a cap goes, Yeah, we better leave before he gives us rabies! <laughs> This poor fat kid can't catch a break. Mm -hmm. uh, as they sit, Doug has something to tell Brian. Brian? Yeah? Uh, I, I got something to tell you. Yeah? So? You know the race? The, the train race earlier? Yeah. I 
sort of fixed it. Huh? I took a piece of the track from my side, made it a shorter run so my Berkshire would win. And there it was, the answer to what had confounded me all night. I knew no one could beat my Santa Fe. Only Dougie didn't have to tell me he cheated, and if he hadn't, I'd have never known. I think right then, at that moment, I knew what a great friend was all about, and why I'd probably never have one like that ever again. Now, that's that's being a good friend, yeah. because a, a great friend wouldn't have jerked you around to begin with. It right? wouldn't cheat you, you know what I mean? Like, yes. That would have been nicer. <laughs> now we jump to the feature film, Frankenstein, as it begins. But Brian's still got to narrate all through it. Really? Now, there were a lot of horror movies made in the 1950s, and Porky Webster was an expert on them all. He could describe in vivid detail every gory scene from every film from The Thing to Tarantula. It was If it was a weird flick, Porky knew it frame by frame. What I know now, but didn't know then, was that Porky was a master of deceit. He had gleaned most of this vast cinematic knowledge from Chester Whiting of the fifth grade. Chester was a veritable walking encyclopedia of the theater of the macabre. Porky himself had never seen any of those films. He was terrified. They gave him nightmares. The only reason he'd allowed himself to see Frankenstein was because no one knew anything about it. Not even Chester Whiting of the fifth grade. I feel like we just uncovered a conspiracy with the lowest stakes in history. I know, really. Is there a don't care button I can push here? Like, what? (laughs) Porky comments on the film, goes, pretty boring so far. And then Dr. Frankenstein in the movie says, he is just resting, waiting for a new life to come. Doug shushes Porky with a shh. Yeah, yeah, this movie's a loser. Shh. Knock it off, Webster. It went on like that, Porky munching popcorn loudly and critiquing every minute of celluloid. Good! In 15 minutes, the storm will be at its height! Then we'll be ready! It looks like the boiler room at school. Shh! Shh! Then, Frankenstein's monster shows up. Porky was relentless in his abuses, right up to the time when the monster came through the door backwards. That did it. One gander at Karloff's physiognomy, physiognomy, (laughs) and the porker was over the rail. Yeah! Grab him! Uh, Porky flips over the rail of the balcony anyway and falls to the shrieking crowd below. He lands on the floor with a whoomph, somehow not hurting himself or anyone else. I've often wondered since what it felt like, sitting there in the audience looking up and seeing down, seeing an overweight, bug-eyed werewolf hurtling down a hall of popcorn, a hail of popcorn and juju fruits. I've often wondered, too, how the porker survived it unscathed. But he did. But the stunt did get them all kicked out of the Rialto. Uh, Brian is really annoyed by this, and he looks ready to sock old Porky there. You damn stupid, damn idiot, damn moron! We'll never get to see it now! It was playing for one damn night only! Uh, see, Porky, he calls people gay, Doug po- talks about their willies, and Brian says damn a lot. Mm-hmm. Take it easy, Brian! One night only! One damn night only! And you have to fall out of the damn balcony on your damn head before the damn picture even starts! Damn it! Brian's so wound up, he decides it's time to head back to the old Hanley house. He wants to get his pearl handle jackknife back. 
come on. I mean, you knew that was coming eventually. It was, it was always going to end this it was, way. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was Chekhov's pearl handle <laughs> jackknife. <laughs> uh, it sounded in the cheerful glow of Rialto Neon like a swell idea. But as we treaded our way back through the deserted cemetery toward the cavernous maw of old man Henley's front porch, I began to have my doubts. You already stole Stephen King's sto- short story idea. Do you really have to crib his writing style, too? I mean, really? You're the cavernous maw of a porch? Oh. Give me a break. <laughs> uh, they creep into the house, which looks dusty and abandoned. It's your basic haunted house. Creepy hinges cre- that are yeah. creaking, wafts, hazy wafts floating around the air, cloth covering all the furniture. And then they all come to the bottom of some stairs. And Porky goes, are you, are you going up, Brian? Of course! Then after a pause, Porky says, uh, when do you think you might be going up, Brian? When I'm ready, when I'm ready. After another pause, Porky goes, getting anywhere close yet, Brian? Almost. Okay, I'm ready now. Brian leads the rest of them up the steps, despite Porky's protests. And while Porky and Doug fight in their usual fashion, the boys creep along the hall, and then they hear a low moan. And then it came. A sound I shall remember all the rest of my days. A low, guttural groan that rose quavering into the ghastly, animal-like wail, echoing towards us from somewhere within the Stygian depths of that malignant house. It was followed immediately by a gagging, nostril-searing smell, like something from the pit of hell itself, like like stale chili and Rialto popcorn. Stygian depths, huh? <laughs> Doug goes, Jesus, Parker, was that you? Sorry, fellas. I think I filled my pants. Buddy, if you've pooped yourself, there'd be no thinking about it. You would know. You'd know. You'd know. Then the moan comes again. It's him, old man Hanley. He did die. It's his ghost. He's coming for us. He knows we're trespassing, and he's going to swoop down on us and tear off our heads and shove rat spit down our necks and jack our bodies into a million little... Shut up, Webster. Maybe the old guy's in trouble. Maybe he fell and hurt himself or something. That's ridiculous. I'm I'm going with Porky's ghost theory. Yeah, that makes be... the most sense, sure. Yeah. Uh, now they creep down the hallway toward um, toward the moaning until they reach a door. Porky begs Brian not to open it, but Brian does anyway. He really wants that knife. Yeah. Um, <laughs> behind the door, a bunch of uh, greasers are torturing old man Hawkins, and one of them is using Brian's pearl-handled jackknife. Would you look at that. The narration mm. goes... It was old man Hanley, all right, and he was hurt, hurt bad. And the, and the three hulking hoods surrounding him didn't seem the least bit sympathetic. Someone had finally decided to see if those tales of hidden wealth were true. Hanley wasn't a pretty sight, but what made it worst of all was that blade they were using to carve him up. I recognized the shiny pearl handle immediately. I think if you were to ask old man Hanley, he'd probably say that him getting carved up was worse. Yeah, I don't think the knife would factor into his opinion on that. Yeah. yeah the greaser goes, what the hell? Get him! Oh! <laughs> the boys run uh, quickly. Then they split up. Uh, they'd all been chased before, so this is sort of an operation <laughs> for them. And each exhibits a weird new ability. <laughs> uh, yeah. Doug runs toward a wall and ricochets off it, sending his pursuer crashing into the wall that he bounced off of. Uh, Porky hides on top of a chandelier, and when his pursuer smells Porky's uh, work, the mm. chandelier falls down and 
maybe kills him? I mean, it seems like it could have, right? I mean, sheesh, that, that's a bunch of crystal jagged pounds and pounds of crystal. Uh, and Brian just runs very fast, and uh, he tries the ricocheting trick that, trick that Doug used, but he smashes through a plate glass window. You can't all be the Prince of Persia. No. Uh, he lands outside with a big thump, dazed and probably concussed. But the main greaser holding his knife is still hot on his trail. The greaser chases Brian all the way to the cemetery, and Brian then reaches onto a mausoleum and pulls himself up onto the roof. I knew I'd never made it all the way back to town, much less my front doorstep. So in desperation, I grabbed onto the nearest thing I could find and began to climb. In my dazed condition, I thought it was a tree. What it was was a crypt, an old decaying limestone crypt that had been in the Hanley family for generations. I didn't get far. And so as he gets up there, the greaser actually grabs Brian by his ankle. I was dead meat, and as that killer began to drag me off the roof of that ancient crypt, all I could think was, now I was for sure never going to get to see termites from Mars. That's what you were thinking? Yeah, dude, you could, believe me, you you're could miss be, that one. <laughs> Fortunately for me, the combination of all that excitement, the fall, the fear, and those two Mars bars I'd consumed at the movie began to take their toll on my insides. I gave it up. All of it. Which is to say Brian pukes all over the greaser. And it's green for some reason. Yeah, very bile yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the greaser goes, yuck, you slimy little bastard, oh! <laughs> this gives Brian a few seconds to scramble further onto the roof of the crypt, but the greaser is hot on his trail and grabs the cuff of his pants. Then the roof of the mausoleum crumbles away and the greaser falls headfirst right onto a coffin. He breaks the lid and the greaser slips inside. Hanging by one arm from the roof of the mausoleum, Brian watches the greaser land. And then millions of little bugs swarm all over the greaser. And what I saw then, I never seen the life of since, nor told a living soul until now. Insects, pale, luminous insects with skittling legs and clicking jaws, thousands of them, millions of them, covering the crypt's dank interior as they poured from the shattered sides of the coffin. Yeah, get them off of me! Termites, that's what they were. Only termites the size and number of which I'd never seen before. They were hideous, voracious, like creatures from another planet. Whoa, wait, wait, were they perhaps <laughs> termites from Mars? See, you thought you'd never get to see them, you're, you'd look at oh, them right now! Living it. <laughs> and they swarmed <laughs> like a pale yellow tide over the hysterical body of my antagonist. And I would join him. In a second, my numbing fingers would let go and I would plummet downward into that seething, writhing mass with him, to be covered from head to foot and slowly eaten alive. That's when the third miracle happened. Yes, a hand appears at the hole in the roof just as Brian slips, and this hand grabs his wrist and hauls him away to safety. We see that it is the Dark Man. It was the Dark Man, appearing from out of nowhere like a shadowed phantom for the last time that night, and for the last time in my life. And even though I couldn't quite see his face in the darkness, I had the feeling he was smiling at me. Well, that's enough to put you off your food now. Huh? Oh, she would have a white van to take you home, too. Good God. <laughs> now, the next thing we see, Brian is waking up in bed looking shocked. His mom and little brother standing right there, and uh, that probably freaked me out, too. Yeah, just like, boink, hey, we're just watching you sleep. <laughs> I guess I fainted after that, because the next thing I knew, I was home in bed, and mom was serving me hot malto meal, and Kenny was running around like a bandit asking a million questions. All's well that ends well. 
and this story ends very well indeed. Doug and Porky made it home safely. The police were notified. Old Man Hanley was revived, and the crooks were caught. Margie Brewster did finally come to the window that night, the moonlight glistening on her dilated whiteness, but Denny Colt saw it only in his dreams. You fell asleep, you see. Yeah. And so time marches on, and youthful things fade, as they must for everyone. In May of 1958, my family moved away from Crystal Falls, Illinois, to a place called St. Louis. I think I've heard of that place. Yeah, I don't know where where I might have heard of that, but yeah. The years rolled on. I went to college, got married, moved to L.A., and found myself writing movies instead of watching them. There's a panel of a much older Brian walking with a busty woman in front of a movie poster for Amber Star, The Cosmic Odyssey. We, we guess he wrote this script. Yeah. Uh, of, of course, it's not a real movie. No, he, he wrote nothing. He's just a fictional guy. <laughs> <laughs> I went back to the old hometown recently to visit my friends. Everyone had moved away but Doug Fremont. Doug had inherited his parents' house after they'd been killed in an auto accident. It looked pretty much the same. He even had his old Lionel train layout in the basement, although other hands were working the controls now. In this panel, older Brian and older Doug watch while Doug's two sons play with the trains. It was great seeing Doug again, but other than reminiscing about the old days, we really didn't have all that much to say to each other. They asked me to stay the night, but I told them I had to get back to L.A., which was only partially a lie. Why, you no-good Hollywood phony... And, uh, you know, we're just going to wrap it up there. There is, like, three more giant captions of, like, you know, that was the last summer of my life, and now I'm going to, you know, (laughs) if you want to read all that self-indulgent exposition, you can get the book. Actually, you can read the whole thing for free on readcomicsonline.com. We'll mention that Mm -hmm. later on, too. Next story is uh, Fraternity. This is also written by Bruce Jones, art by Scott Saavedra. Uh, He was born presumably naked, we think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he drew storyboards for one of Jay Leno's first film roles in What's Up, Sun Demon, 1983, directed by Craig Mitchell and Robert Clark. This is a humorous redubbing of the 1958 horror flick, The Hideous Sun Demon, that was 1958, directed by Robert Clark and Tim Boutros, and is sometimes released as Revenge of the Sun Demon, if you are a Jay Leno completist or a Scott Savidra completist. Absolutely. Uh, you need that. You need to have that, yeah. Uh, a self-taught comic artist, Scott started his first comic project, It's Science with Dr. Radium, in 1986. He put out the comic book Rats in 1992 through Piranha Press, and in between those two times, he contributed to this collection. You can find out more about him and give him work at scottsavedra.com. The story was lettered by Kurt Hathaway with colors by Barbara Marka, and our story opens at a nightclub where lots of beautiful people are smiling and dancing. And of course, there's beautiful people in 1980s terms, which uh, in this case, you know, it means yuppies. It means yuppies, basically. Yeah. Uh, a short, balding man named Harry Soames is chatting up a blonde woman at the bar, and this is our protagonist. He goes, you know, I was sitting clear over there on the other end of the bar. But the moment you walked in with that beautiful smile, I said to myself, Buzz off, you little nimrod! The blonde storms off quickly, and Mr. Soames looks, as you might imagine, pretty bummed out. Yeah, the caption uh, kind of narrates the scene, says, uh, Funny thing about constant rejection, you never really get used to it. You never stop hurting inside. The knot only twists tighter, the longing only increases. Isn't that right, Mr. Soames? And Soames thinks to himself, sure, walk off, walk right out of my life. 
Harry grabs his coat and heads for the exit. Place is a dump anyway. Don't know why I come here. He steps out into the city night and into his modest one-room apartment. Shouldn't waste my time on women. Should be home, reading a good book, improving my mind. Other things in life than women. Really, Mr. Soames? And what is that? Certainly not your bleak little apartment. Not the yellowed pages of your pathetic little library. You're approaching 40 years of age, Mr. Soames. Most men are married by now. Most men have found somebody. Anybody. I don't just... I don't want just anybody. Oh? And who is it you do want, Mr. Soames? That beautiful blonde at the bar tonight, perhaps? Or how about that gorgeous brunette Miss Thompson at work? Maybe Madonna isn't busy tonight. Why don't you give her a ring? Shut up, shut up. Harry Soames plops on his bed, which looks more like a highfalutin cot. <laughs> tired. Christ, I'm so tired. Yes, that's it, Mr. Soames. Go to sleep. Go to the soft, comforting sanctity of sleep. They're waiting for you there, Mr. Soames. The blonde, the brunette, all of them. That's the best way to possess them anyway. That's the only way. Possess them? What, what is your problem, caption voice? Yeah, he just wants you to weirdo. sleep with them. The only yeah. God. No. <laughs> <laughs> now that night, Harry dreams. Uh, you know, boinking a brunette co-worker. Actually, that might have just been the next day. Yeah, uh, at his office, a woman says, Harry! Hey, wake up! Huh? Oh, gosh, I fell asleep. Harry has a job at a desk pushing papers. It doesn't look very pleasant. It looks very exciting, though. Yeah, really. Uh, <laughs> he works in a bullpen. Uh, seems his nearby co-workers find him quite amusing. Yeah, the uh, woman, Miss Thompson, says, Let Mr. Honeywell catch you, and you'll be out of a job! Miss Thompson, wait. Well? I, uh, that is, what, what I want to say is, uh... Well, come on, I haven't got all day! I, I was thinking, perhaps you're free tonight. And Miss Thompson curtly turns and walks away and says, Sorry, I've got a date! But, but I... And one of the co-workers says, Nice try, Mr. Soames! She almost looked twice at you that time! <laughs> Imagine keeping track of that. Really? Uh, now, <laughs> that evening, as Harry strides in the rain, his the hectoring words of his co-worker ring in his ears. I don't care. I just don't care. To hell with him. To hell with all of them. He heads back to that same nightclub that he struck out in last night. A couple of patrons even just make fun of him as he walks in. Yep. He slides into an unoccupied booth. Just a drink. Just one drink. Then I'm getting out of this hole. What's this? Somebody left a newspaper. The front page of the newspaper has a picture of a crime scene, and it reads, Man found murdered. Hunter's Point. The body of a Mr. Robert Wilkes was discovered by police here early Tuesday morning in what was being described as a homicide without apparent motive. And yet, no next of kin have been located, and it is believed Mr. Wilkes lived alone. My God. Caption reads, what is it, Mr. Soames? What is it about this terrible headlines, the pathetic photo that gets to you? Is it that you identify in some way with the victim, with the suddenness, the senselessness of his death? Does it remind you somehow of the senselessness of your own life? Jeez, the, the caption voice is worse than my mother-in-law. Oh God, hectoring all the time. <laughs> or is it the fact that you, that like you, the man had no friends, no family, no one to wonder why their loved one doesn't return home, no one to grieve at the empty chair at the dining room table? 
I mean, he did get a front page obituary, so that's pretty cool. I would say so. Right? Yeah, I don't think I'll be think, getting that. Yeah. Think of all the babies born that day that were going to have that page framed on their walls forever. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Soames reacts again. He goes, "My God." Harry Soames is crying as he considers the article he's read, and a blonde woman, possibly the exact same blonde woman from last night, passes by and says, Mister, hey, you all right? And the caption reads, What causes you to do it, Mr. Soames? And more importantly, why does it come so easily? My, my brother. It's my brother. Uh, the guy in the newspaper? Oh, gee, honey, that's rough. So, to make a long story short, she gives him a ride home. They go upstairs with Harry to comfort him, and then they, they sleep together. Uh, uh, to use television censors per lance, of course. Yes, of course. Um, the next day, Harry Soames strolls into work looking happy and spry. Yeah, one of his co-workers says, Hey, would you look at the smile on old wallflower Soames' face? Yeah, another one goes, What happened, Soames? You finally get lucky? And he doesn't say anything, but he did, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that night, Harry's back at the nightclub trying the same shtick, but... It doesn't work, and it looks like the exact same woman anyway with a different <laughs> hairstyle. It's, it's like, true. <laughs> now, as Harry leaves the bar that night, he ponders. And the caption reads, Even before you were through with your phony spiel, you knew it wasn't going to play, didn't you, Mr. Soames? Something was missing, a sincerity behind the words. You no longer felt sorry for the dead man, and it showed in your voice. It was a neat trick, but it was a one-time trick. Harry finds himself walking into another night spot. Now, here's a dive you've never tried before. Why not make it one for the road? And the television at the bar is playing the news. And there's a story about a 10-year-old boy who was struck by a train. Harry is seated next to another blonde. And another new hairstyle. Terrible. Just terrible. It's Tommy. Oh, my God. That's my little brother. Oh, jeez, mister. That's awful. Like my own son, Tommy. Oh, Tommy. If only they let me see you. And she goes home and sleeps with Harry. Mm-hmm. But there's someone in the shadows who follows his every move now. Looks like you're on a roll, Mr. Soames. Another night, another make-believe tragedy, another delicious dish. And then Soames notices the shadow and goes, Must have been just some wino looking for a touch. Yeah, yeah that was it. Uh, the next night, Harry Soames pulls the same stunt by reading about another new murder in the newspaper. And that night, while the blonde of the evening sleeps, he sees the man in shadow standing outside of his home. It's a man again. He's following me. I swear he's following me. The next night, or some night, anyway, uh, Harry's at the bar thumbing through the newspaper for murders. Thinks to himself, nothing on the front page this week. Nothing on the inside, either. Then, another blonde woman approaches. She has the same hairstyle as the first blonde, but this one now wears a different outfit. Sweet God, look at that. I've got to find something. She's coming this way. Finally, Harry finds what he's looking for, a heart attack on the back page. But before he can pull his moves, he sees that shadowing man lurking nearby. It's him again. He's following me. Following me. Who are you? Leave me alone. I don't see anybody. Come back here, damn you. Come back here. Harry Soames chases the mysterious guy outside and down an alley. Uh, come on, Harry, are you new to the city or something? Oh, Man, what a dumb move. <laughs> I know you're in there. What do you want of me? What do you want? And then from behind Harry, a zombie says, <laughs> Brother! 
And it's a horde of zombies, not just one. And these are the folks whose death he's exploited to manipulate women into having sex with him. Although they look really decomposed. Didn't they just start doing this like last week? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would think they'd still look just to be dirty, but uh, then the zombie says, Blood Brother! And off panel, Harry bites it or gets bitten. You get the idea. He's dead. Maybe both, yeah. At some bar, another unassuming gentleman sits at a booth with a newspaper. He's wearing a red bow tie and has really big ears. You know what it feels like, don't you, Mr. Smith? Oh, you know all too well the feelings of hopelessness, frustration, and alienation that come from being someone like you. Just once you'd like to be noticed for something besides your funny ears. And just once you'd like to be on the receiving end of a warm, feminine smile. Yes, this Mr. Smith goes, just one drink, and I'm getting out of this hole. What's this? Somebody left the newspaper. What is it, Mr. Smith? What is it about the terrible headlines, the pathetic photo that gets to you? Is that you identify in some way with the victim? My God. Does it remind you somehow of the senselessness of your own life? Mr. Smith looks about ready to sob, and then a totally different blonde approaches him. And she says, Mr. Hey, you all right? That's all. The beat goes up. The cycle continues, yes. (laughs) That takes us to our third story, Night Dive, which was written by the same fella, Bruce Jones, but we do meet a new artist, Henry Mayo. He would get a start in comics on Blackthorn 3D series number four that had a June 1985 cover date. He'd color a story for Jamie Hernandez in the anthology Anything Goes number two, December 1986 cover for Fantagraphics Books. He drew all three issues of Dinosaur Rex, that was January through June 1987, for Upshot Graphics. And I bet around the same time, he probably drew this story for this comic book. Yeah. Uh, it looks to us like he left comics for the far greener pastures of graphic and concept, concept design for feature films, which include Men in Black, Shrek, and Scooby-Doo. And like many others, for reals. Yeah. Uh, you, you can hit him up at hankmayo.com. Uh, The letters here are by Carrie Spiegel. Looks like Hank did everything else. Uh, The opening panel here shows a very smug, lithe guy looking looking guy with slicked back hair. You know, if he had darker hair, he'd be like a dead ringer for Prince Namor the Submariner. Absolutely. Uh, He's in a locker room, proudly sitting before a locker with his name on it, and it reads Roger Peterson. Yes, and Roger is our narrator, and he says, Well, (laughs) here I am at last. Let me tell you, it's quite the place. I mean, as many times I heard about this joint, it's even more than I expected. It's really pretty snazzy. Of course, it does get lonely around here at times. It's strictly exclusive, you understand, and the women may be beautiful, but they're kind of hard to get to know. But anyhow, I got my own locker. I finally got my own locker, and I am really am a member, and I guess that's something. But here, and I'm getting ahead of myself as usual, the story doesn't start here. It begins on the locker-deprived planet of Napsekia. No, I'm only kidding. No. Uh, the scene shifts to Roger aboard a boat called Monkey Business, peeling his shirt off and getting to work. It starts here in San Diego, Balboa Harbor to be exact. That's me, Roger Peterson, on the deck there. Nah, that ain't my boat. Hell, I wish it was. And I ain't about to take her out, neither. What I am about to do, I'm about to clean the barnacles off her, off her keel for $2.80 an hour. It's how I make my living, sweating and cussing over richer men's boats. Life's not great. 
Now, Monkey Business is an American yacht built for the use of the Turnberry Isle Resort Marina in southern Florida. Guests that have hosted aboard this yacht included Elkton John, Elizabeth Taylor, Jack Nicholson, and Julio Iglesias. In March 1987, the yacht was re- was leased by William C. Broadhurst, and he and former U.S. Senator Gary Hart sailed it to Bimini for an overnight trip with two women, one of whom was Donna Rice. After he became candidate for the Democratic nomination in 1988 presidential race, uh, Garrett questions about an, an affair uh, with Donna Rice came up for Gary Hart. Then, a picture of her sitting on his lap aboard the monkey business surfaced, torpedoing any hope he had to be nominated, uh, despite Republican operative Lee Atwater's admission that the photo had been staged to discredit Hart. Dirty business. Uh, Which uh, happened after this comic was released, we should say. Uh, So it looks like the name of this boat is probably just a coincidence, or Bruce Jones possibly saw the actual boat and dug the name. Uh, Today, Donna Rice is a communications director and spokesperson for Enough is Enough. That's a nonprofit organization that has been making the Internet safe for families since 1994. After dropping his bid for the presidency, Gary Hart will return to uh, private law practice, and uh, today is one of the world's foremost authorities on terrorism and and world security. Well, bless his heart. So, mm-hmm. uh, Roger continues delivering his statement of intent. Yeah, that's how I make my bread and butter money. The fortune I'm counting on is out there in Gloriette Bay somewhere, lying about 10 or 12 fathoms below the rolling Pacific. That's the Star of India. She was a small passenger vessel bound for America from the British Isles in the late 1800s. She carried, so it is said, an East African ruler and a king's ransom in sacred jewels. She sank within miles of the shoreline in the worst tropical storm in that century. Some say the treasure's more myth than fact, but I got a sense about these things. Uh, The Star of India was a windjammer ship built on the Isle of Man in the United Kingdom in 1863. After decades of sailing between Britain, New Zealand, and India, the Star ended its career hauling salmon from Alaska to California in the early 20th century. Uh, The Star of India was retired in 1926 and restored the following year as part of the Maritime Museum of San Diego in San Diego, California, where it can be seen today. Uh, The ship is both a California historical landmark and a United States national historical landmark, uh, not ever sunk off the coast, and it (laughs) did not ever carry a mythical treasure. Uh, Roger has spent the last 10 years searching for this ship, scripting and saving to do so, all to gain entrance to that building on the hill. He continues his narration. Gibson's Locker, the most expensive, most exclusive men's club on the West Coast. Yeah, the biggest rigs down here in the harbor owned by the rich snobs that frequent that joint. And what a joint it is. Private pools, private golf course, private sauna, private club room, and women. The most beautiful women in Southern California hang around that place, just hoping to get picked up by a rich playboy. All I ever wanted in this lifetime was my own locker with my own name on it in that very exclusive club. Hell, I'd have given my left arm just to see the inside of the place. But you gotta be a member. Uh, sorry, sir, but we only accept members who have forfeit their right arms. Ah, what a shame. <laughs> Close. Yeah. Uh, now, from the dock, a man in a brown blazer calls over to Roger. Yeah, he says, Roger? Not Roger Peterson. It can't be. Bill. Bill Wentworth. What are you doing here? Just moved in from New York. Good Lord, I haven't seen you since college. You you look well, Bill. I I mean, you look like you're doing well. Me? What about you? Hey, I wish I could afford a yacht this big. How long have you had her? 
Well, I, I, I don't actually. Still negotiating the price, eh? Say, how about a drink? You're a member of the club, of course. I, I was thinking about joining, actually. Is it a good club? Good. The best. Come on, I'll take you to lunch as a guest. Back to Roger's narration, he says, That's how I got in over my head. I couldn't tell Bill the truth that I was dead broke. How could I bear the humiliation after all these years? And how could I pass up an opportunity like this to see the inside of that fabled club? Now, Roger is enthralled by this opulent club where he has the best meal he's ever eaten. Uh, he tells Bill he's forgotten his wallet when the check comes. I'll have to remember that one. Yeah, that's a, a good one. Uh, <laughs> Bill thinks nothing of it, then excuses himself to the restroom. It would be pretty hilarious if, like, Bill just skipped out on the tab at this point. That one I know. Yeah, I don't know about the, I know about the running out on the bill. <laughs> no, uh, we get back at the table, a sinewy old man wearing an ascot gets Roger's attention uh, once Bill has stepped away. He says, quite a predicament, isn't it? Huh? Who are you? Your pardon, I, I couldn't help overhearing you. I, you were talking <coughs> to yourself rather loudly, I'm afraid. Wait a second. So, so was the narr was the narration audible? Was like, was he like, was all this narration said out loud? Yeah, he just, I thought it was just an internal thing. People must have thought he was just talking to himself or something the whole time. <laughs> okay, all I sir? want is a locker. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> you okay? Bye. Uh, my name is Jones. I believe you have seen you around the harbor, haven't I? Mr. Peterson, isn't it? Yeah, you've heard of me. Indeed. It's rumored that you're a rather accomplished salvage diver. Would that be true? Now, what's it to you, Jones? I may be in need of a good salvage man. You see, I recently came across a reliable source of information which discloses the exact location of a certain sunken treasure vessel. Perhaps you've heard of it. The Star of India. The Star of... And just then, Bill returns from the head. He says, Back again. Say, did you see the legs on that blonde over there, Raj? Not too shabby. Yeah, nice knockers, too. Hey, what are you doing, talking to yourself? Seems that Jones has vanished in the moment that Roger was distracted. Uh, Bill shows off the uh, rest of the clubhouse, smugly showing off the locker room with all those named lockers. And Roger goes through it in sort of a daze, still rattled by his experience with that strange old man named Jones. I walked out of there as depressed as I've ever been. Down by the jetty that night, I stood gazing into the crashing waves and thinking seriously about just jumping in. Bill had it all. We were the same age, and I had nothing. Nothing but a lot of stupid dreams. And then, from further up the dock, Mr. Peterson. Mr. Jones, what happened to you in the dining room? Uh, suddenly, Mr. Jones appears to have red eyes, which should be... Oh, should trustworthy. Be, should be a warning. Yeah, maybe something. <laughs> Forgive me, but one cannot be too cautious when discussing the location of a sunken treasure ship. Don't you agree? Roger, in fact, does agree, and Mr. Jones suggests that they go salvage the Star of India that very evening. Roger doesn't think diving at night is all that great an idea, though. What better way to disguise our work? My ship rests at anchor just over a mile due south of this point. All the necessary salvaging equipment is aboard. She lacks only a strong back to work the winches and make us both rich. Do we have an agreement then, Mr. Peterson? <clears throat> and Jones looks positively manic right now. Yeah, Roger replies with, but that's a that's a big job for only one diver. Pardon me. 
I have an assistant to help you. Meet me there at precisely midnight, and by this time tomorrow, you will have that private locker, Mr. Peterson. Yeesh, how, how loudly was this guy talking to himself before? Yeah, everyone knows his business about the locker. And he wants a locker, yeah. Now, uh, that night, at midnight, Roger reaches Mr. Jones's yacht, and a storm is just beginning to brew. I believe you know my assistant, Mr. Wentworth. Bill Wentworth? What's he doing here? He's already got more money than he knows what to do with. It, it isn't true, Roger. Pamela left me last week, took everything. I'm bankrupt. They're threatening to kick me out of the club. Not to worry, Mr. Wentworth. The most of you will be enjoying the privileges of membership in no time. Roger suits up and prepares to dive for that star of India. Though Bill has a full wetsuit on, Roger's just wearing flippers and a tank, but otherwise swimming trunks. I don't know why, but that's fine. Yes. Roger's narration continues. It was black as pitch in that water. We couldn't have seen our hands before our faces without the torches. I already knew what I was going to do, even before we hit the water. Bill Wentworth had one up me for the last time. I could deal with the weird Mr. Jones later. And Roger withdraws a knife from a sheath at his side. And stabs Bill Wentworth right in the water. Ugh! The sharks were already attracted by the light of our torches. A little blood in the water just iced the cake. Trouble was, I dropped my torch in all that excitement. The last thing I saw was Bill's struggling form being ripped apart by Mako's. Then blackness closed in all around me. Roger becomes disoriented and doesn't know which end is up. Uh, frantically, he starts swimming towards a faint light, not sure if it's a cave or something on the surface. Yes, his narration continues. It was a cave, and that wasn't even the best part. Then he gasps audibly and goes, I, I found it, the Star of India. No wonder no wonder, no one could spot her before. It she was inside this grotto. The old boat sits on piles of gold and jewels inside the cave. But then Roger is startled by a visitor. Beautiful, aren't they? The greatest treasures from the greatest ships that ever sailed the seven seas. I've spent a rather a long time collecting them. M Mr. Jones? I just know you'll enjoy guarding them for me while I'm out doing my collecting. All the others did. <coughs> feel free. I'm sorry, I have something caught in my throat here. Uh, feel free <laughs> to roam amongst them. Think of them as your own. It's impossible to leave, of course. Jones turns and walks into the water. Hey, wait, how did you... You're a full member now, so please enjoy the facilities. I must leave you now. Still a few things left in the Titanic I want to get before they poke around anymore. Later, Roger sits before a massive seafood feast, and he narrates, It isn't a bad little club. I guess the dining room's spacious and airy, and the cutlery's the finest 16th century silver, even if the menu is always seafood. Then Roger is shown sitting on a small rock within the cave, surrounded by water, attended by several mermaids. And the lagoon is bigger and livelier than the finest spa on the West Coast. Even if the women are sort of frustrating on a date, I get a little lonely sometimes when Mr. Jones ain't here to talk to. But I guess having my own locker sort of makes up for it. That's mine there, right next to the owner's. And the last panel reveals that Roger Peterson's locker sits just to the right, of Davy Jones's.
Davy Jones's locker is an idiom for the bottom of the sea, uh, the state of death among drowned sailors and shipwrecks. The earliest known reference of the negative connotation of Davy Jones occurs in the Four Years' Voyages of Captain George Roberts by the author Daniel Defoe, published in 1726 in London. Some of Lowe's company said, and this is a quote, they would look out some things and give me along and give me along with me when I was going away. But Ruffle told them they should not, for he would toss them all into Davy Jones's locker if they did. An early description of Davy Jones occurs in Tobias Smollett's The Adventures of Peregrine, Peregrine Pickle, which was published in 1751. Quote here, This same Davy Jones, according to sailors, is the fiend that presides over all the evil spirits of the deep, and is often seen in various shapes, perching among the rigging on the eve of hurricanes, shipwrecks, and other disasters to which seafaring life is exposed, warning, of de- warning the devoted wretch of death and woe. And in the 1898 Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, it connects Dave to the West Indian duppy. This is a word of Jamaican origin meaning ghost or spirit, and Jones to biblical to the biblical Jonah. It says, he's gone to Davy Jones' locker, i.e. he is dead. Jones is a corruption of Jonah, the prophet who was thrown into the sea. Locker in Seaman's phrase means any receptacle for private stores. And duppy is a ghost or spirit among the West Indian Negroes. So the whole phrase is, he has gone to the place Place of safekeeping where Duppy Jonah was sent to. And it's the name of the lead singer from the monkeys. Hey, I wonder if that's related hey, hey. to that. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. That's something. <laughs> uh, so we finally got through this super spooky collection of twisted I'm, tales. I'm itchy, yeah. Yeah, I definitely feeling uh, spooked out of my skin. Definitely feeling like I want to have a nice big drink or something. Big drink of water, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, so we're going to take a little short break here. When we come back, we're going to wrap up on Eclipse Comics and uh, Bruce Jones. <laughs> Shaking off our torsos <laughs> here, and uh, we're we're back to wrap up. We're going to talk about Eclipse Comics again. Now they would they would cease operations in 1994, at which time their assets would be eventually acquired by Todd McFarlane, which created a whole other story that we discussed in great length during the Marvel Man slash Miracle Man series in the archives. Eclipse's last publication would be its spring 1993 catalog, which served as a complete bibliography of its publication history. They still popped out a translated manga, which was co-published with Viz in uh, 1988 as well. In the mid-2000s, one of the founders, Dean Mullaney, would approach IDW Publishing with a proposal to publish hardcover reprints of American comic strips. 
This became the IW, I'm sorry, IDW imprint, the Library of American Comics, which would debut in 19, oh Jesus, in 2007 <laughs> with the book The Complete Terry of the Pirates, Volume 1, 1934-1936 by Milton Caniff. As, Mul- as Mulaney described, Terry has always been my favorite strip, and I was going to publish it in the early 80s through Eclipse Comics, but Terry Nantier at NBM beat me to it. Luckily, I've lived long enough so that 25 years later, I'm in a position to release new editions of Terry. Uh, with Dean Mullaney as its creative director, the imprint has gone on to publish collections of strips including Dick Tracy, Little Orphan Annie, Bringing Up Father, Family Circus, and Bloom County. In 2014, Mullaney added another imprint at IDW, Eurocomics, in order to publish new English translations of European comics. This included Hugo Pratt's Corto Maltese, Paracuelos by Carlos Jimenez, and Alak Sinner by Munoz and Sampaya. He's the creative director and editor of the Library of American Comics, and Mulaney has won seven Eisner Awards and one Harvey Award. He received San Diego Comic-Con's Inkpot Award in 2013, and the following year, he was inducted into Robert Overstreet's Hall of Fame. Even while co-owning Eclipse, Jan Mullaney, Dean Mullaney's brother, was a very successful session musician and has played keyboards and provided vocals for Madonna, Michael Bolton, and other music stars. Hmm. We'll jump over to Bruce Jones and wrap him up. Uh, he wrote artist Richard Corbin's Rip in Time. It was a five-issue miniseries from 86 to 87. That was published by Fantagore Press. By the early 1990s, Jones had shifted to screenwriting, and he worked on the USA Network's The Hitchhiker TV series, which was ported over from HBO, uh, in several television movies with writing partner and now wife April Campbell Jones. They, they'd get married in 1984. Uh, Jones would reminisce and say, a producer contacted me about making Somerset into a movie, and that got me into the Writers Guild and led to film and TV work. I still wrote and drew the occasional comics job for Marvel or Dark Horse, but I began working for HBO and the networks and uh, writing novels for Doubleday and Dutton, etc. about that time and just fell away from comics for a while. He also wrote a series of thriller novels including Game Running in 1995, Sprinter in 1998, Maximum Velocity in 1998, all published by Signet Books. From 1990 to 1992, Jones took over as writer of the newspaper comic strip Flash Gordon, then drawn by Ralph Reese. Bruce Jones returned to Kansas City with his wife and children in 2000 and wrote two more novels. Still Life came out in Penguin Publishing 2001 and Death Rights from Berkeley Publishing 2002 under the pseudonym Bruce Elliott. In 2001, Jones was contacted by Marvel editor Axel Alonso, who offered him a job scripting the then-floundering comic The Incredible Hulk. He wrote issues 37 to 76, that was January 2002 to October 2004 cover dates, and uh, 70 through 76 were under the Marvel Knights imprint. Sales of this title rose significantly, and in 2003, Jones noted that he planned to stay on as Hulk writer, quote, until Marvel throws me off, end quote. And he would be thrown off when longtime Hulk writer Peter David returned to the title and more or less undid the Jones run in a handful of pages. Mm-hmm. Jones said, when a- Axel Alonso began editing a series of anthology books at DC Vertigo, he called me and we did several short pieces together. Working with Corbin and Wrightson again got me nostalgic for comics. Axel moved over to Marvel and invited me to do some Spider-Man work and to consider taking over the regular writing chores for the Hulk. 
He continues, as mentioned, Axel and I had worked previously when he was with DC. When he moved to Marvel, he contacted me about doing some work, including penning the Hulk. I told him I hadn't read it in a while, and he said, don't worry about it, we're looking for a new approach. In an industry that tends to pigeonhole and stereotype, Axel took a chance on someone who, for better or worse, was best known as a horror story and crime novelist. I tended to view me simply as a writer, character-driven, perhaps slightly darker than some, but fundamentally a writer, hopefully not a complete stranger to flexibility and challenge. Fortunately, Axel seemed to concur. Uh, He was even nominated for an Eisner Award for Best Writer that year for The Hulk. But Mm -hmm. then the following year, he signed a two-year contract with DC Comics. Yes, and for DC Comics, Bruce would write Nightwing issues 118 through 124. That was May, November, I'm sorry, May, November 2006 cover dates. Also a Dead Man series for Vertigo that ran 13 issues from 2006 to 2007. And various limited series for DC Comics, including Man Bat, five issues in 2006. OMAC, eight issues in 2006 to 2007. Vigilante, six issues, 2005 through 2006. And I think there was a Warlord one in there as well. Oh, yeah? Okay. Um, yeah, and then 2005. Jones's 10-page story, Jennifer, which appeared in Creepy number 63 in July 1974, drawn by Bernie Wrightson, would be adapted for filmmaker Dario Argento's segment of Masters of Horror, which is a Showtime television series. And uh, Bruce would receive an Inkpot Award in 2004. And that Jennifer, it must have been also reprinted in one of the old uh, comics compendiums or whatever, because probably yeah. it, it's haunting. It's a really creepy, messed up story, partly because of the uh, rights in art, sure. for sure. But yeah. uh, that does conclude our look at uh, Eclipse Comics, Bruce Jones specifically, and this one weird issue or collection i don't even know what to call this uh <laughs> twisted tales anthology? yeah yeah it's sort of an anthology but it was all brand new stories uh at least to sure, the public sure. so uh if you want to read it yourself by the way you can head right on over to uh readcomicsonline.com you don't even need to register to read it you just do a search it's, it'll pop up and you can uh Follow along exactly as we did Because that's how we did it, by the way So that's true <laughs> uh, And if you want to write to us uh, And talk to us about other spooky stories Bruce Jones, other comics uh, publishers That didn't fare through the 90s You can contact us at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com We do have a Patreon at Patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie If you like what we're doing uh, please uh, think about going over there and chipping in a couple of bucks. We do have some exclusive content coming out, but uh, primarily it's just if you think we uh, deserve uh, a few bucks for our efforts, we would really appreciate it. Absolutely. You can follow us over on Facebook, facebook.com slash Cosmic T-Mill History, and you can also check us out on Instagram at Cosmic T-Mill. And it's the same handle on Twitter, at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can check our weekly writings and uh, some uh, classic writings over at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And you can see Chris's daily reviews of DC Comics throughout the many years that they've been in operation over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com, where I think you've gone back to the action weeklies lately. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> you've, you've been, you've been uh, dancing around, going around the whole World of DC. I can't remember. Absolutely. I saw Aquaman recently and mm-hmm. some Green Lantern. Go yeah. check it out. Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com. And later this week, 1,000 days in a row. Woo! 
Ooh. coming this week. Yes. Wow. Uh, yes, and also you can check out weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, which has just been uh, given a little bit of a facelift. All right. And uh, <laughs> it's actually easier to read now. Um, you can find all of our show notes, our links, our images, all that stuff, and also chronological listings of all of our programming. Uh, and uh, I think we've given them a pretty thick show this time around, uh, and that's all we got. Very for scary. Them. Yeah, maybe a little too spooky. People have to wind down, take it easy. You got anything else for them this week? No, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill twistedly. See ya. What must I do to take a holiday?